Our scripture passage for this morning comes from Matthew chapter 7, the first seven verses. Judge not, that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the plank that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn and attack you. This is the word of the Lord. This morning I want us to continue Uh, We're at the the end of the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 through 7, and I want us to continue to consider um, what Jesus is presenting here. If we zoom out and recall that he's repeatedly presenting two ways to relate to life as the followers of God. There's two ways to relate to spiritual disciplines, two ways to think about prayer and being generous and money and who our masters are, two ways to think about trials, two ways to think about how to relate to our enemies. It's continually presenting these these two paths uh, through life. Uh, The one path has this increasing resemblance to the nature of God and the ways of God because we are the children of God. That's the audience to whom this sermon is given. Those who've already trusted trusted in the Father, they are the blessed of chapter one. And the other path does not lead into an increasing resemblance to the ways of God or the nature of God. The other path is a path of incongruence uh, that leads to the resemblance to the ways and the worship of the culture. So I want us to consider this morning grace and growth and good judgment, which I think is what Jesus is provoking here at, uh, at this point. And I want to just come right out of the theological gate and say that uh, Jesus is not forbidding judgment. Now, this passage begins with the two words, judge not, but we, we can't stop there. He's actually presenting two motivations for judgment, two very different applications of judgment. And so we're going to look at those this morning. The first thing we'll look at is uh, the judgment that he's prohibiting, where he says judge not with a judgment that is hypocritical and destructive. And then we're going to move on to look at the exercising of judgment that is thoughtful and restorative. And then lastly, we're going to ask ourselves the question, is there any good news at all in all of this talk of judgment? So firstly, judgment that is hypocritical and destructive. He starts out with using family language. So you'll see that he says, you can't look in your brother's eye. And he chose that because if he had just said a person's eye, it could be anybody. But he's talking specifically to the people of God. So this is a family language, a family conversation. And... Uh, He's provoking us to ask ourselves the question, how do we, as the children of God, relate to the people sitting next to us in this room when we need to exercise judgment and even have difficult conversations motivated by the desire to remove a speck from the eye? What's the motivation? How is that done? What's the application? How do we do this? So he says, he uses that family language of brother. Because in our autonomy, idolizing, referee, despising, uh, sort of individualistic culture here in North America, we do not uh, like the idea of judgment. 
It's offensive, because how dare anybody tell us that what we think or desire or have an appetite for or orient our life around could possibly be wrong, and how dare you uh, judge me for that. It's much, much more attractive to just stop at the first two words of Jesus. It says, judge not, and it's a get-out-of-self-examination free card and say, that's what Jesus said. Um, But he certainly wasn't just saying, judge not. Imagine if you were trying to uh, give somebody directions and they just stopped listening to you after the first two words. How treacherous that would be. Don't turn left. Thanks, got it. Take the next left. Don't turn left. The bridge is out. Got it. Never turn left. Clearly he means turn right. No, take the next left. That'll get you where you need to be. That's the pathway to flourishing. That's the pathway to congruence of the nature of God. This thing called righteousness and holiness, which isn't better than thou-ism, but this love and this wisdom and this congruence of Jesus sort of permeating out of our lives. So Jesus is saying uh, very clearly that we are uh, to have a proper kind of judgment. Definitely don't want to stop at judge not. In the words of in the words of the great swordsman and philosopher Inigo Montoya, I don't think those words mean what you think they mean. So let's move on to what they do mean. Jesus is wanting to provoke a godlike new humanity, real humanity, true humanity. He's leading us into flourishing. And so in order for this to happen, we can't be hypocritical with our judgment. And this is, of course, his problem. He says it overtly. The judgment he's got a problem with, it's, there's a self-righteousness to it. There's a dollop of self-deception on the top. And that's why he uses that provocative image of the plank in his poetry. The speck versus the plank. In verse 2, there's lots of legal language. Just look at verse 2 again for a second. And he's giving us some very poetic uh, imagery here. He, uh, the English translation I chose says, with the judgment you pronounce. And in the Greek, it's kremati, which means verdict. And so he's... He's using super legal language on purpose. You're, you are, you're coming to verdicts. And then he uses the, uh, the other poetic image of measurements. With the measure you use. Do you see that? That's how it's going to be measured. And so yeah, now you have this image of, this, of, of the scales of justice. That are either, that are either equitable and, and righteous and good and true and helpful. Or the exact opposite of that. And what's interesting is... The, the original audience of this was super familiar with scales because they would go to the market and often a lot of the way that they just did their life was they would be buying things that were weighed. And so they were not only familiar with scales, but they were very familiar with unjust scales. And it was, a, it was angering and it was, it was frustrating because if you were the victim of unjust scales, that brought hurt into your life because somebody was profiting off of you and there was an injustice in all this and all through the proverbs you get of course that picture of the unjust scales that's abhorrent to god and so jesus uses that image to say this is the kind of judgment i have a problem with there's an injustice to it a self-righteousness to it and then of course he calls them hypocrites and uh for you know about a thousand years i mean the entire uh the entire uh lifespan of of this very young country of ours hypocrite essentially has always meant somebody is doing something the opposite of what they say they're going to be doing. But when Jesus originally said this, hypocrites, they would have all heard, you stage actors, right? Um, and at the time, all the stage actors were wearing masks. And so there's a judgment that Jesus is disgusted by. 
And it's the mask-wearing judgment. It's this idea that I am either so disconnected from my own brokenness and sin that I am now pronouncing a judgment that can't possibly be good or wise or true or helpful or even be motivated by love and care and empathy and generosity because I, I'm, I've, got this, I've got myself dressed up. And so this is something, this is what Jesus has got a problem with. He wants there to be that transparency that's motivating our judgment, our justice. There's the humility, there's an empathy there. Because without all of that, the judgment is destructive. I mean, imagine, I mean what, a, what an image. How are you going to get the speck out of somebody's eye if you've got a, a, a plank in your own eye? When, some, when someone has a speck in their eye, it affects everything. You don't get a speck in your eye and go, oh, I'll just move on with my day. Everything stops. Because it affects everything. And if someone's going to help you, if you can't get that thing out of your eye and you need somebody to help you get it out, there's got to be some pretty intense precision there for that to be a loving and caring experience. I don't know if any of you guys are Jays fans, you watch a Jays game, but every once in a while, not very often, but sometimes a pitch goes down into the dirt and the catcher will get dirt in their eye, a speck in their eye, because they're trying to stop the pitch. And when they get the speck in their eye, they don't just keep on playing baseball. 40,000 people have to wait because there's a speck in the eye, right? And all of us at home and all the announcers are like, there's a speck in the eye and the trainer's going to come out and he's going to remove the speck in the eye. And it's like a whole thing. And when the trainer comes out, you've got like, it's like a, it goes from a baseball game to a scene in a romantic comedy weirdly. It's like blowing the, blowing the speck out of the eye, the eyelash. I don't know. It's an interesting situation. Everything's got to stop. And you can't have a trainer come out, you know, with an ice cream scoop and go, I got this. You know, Whoa. So all of this poetry Jesus is giving us is not to say, hey, let's not be people of judgment. Hey, if somebody comes into our life to speak to us about something, about our sin, a destructive pattern that we have, something they are worried about or concerned about, let's not have our first response to be like, oh, yo, you can't judge me. Don't judge me. Jesus said, judge not. Well, he didn't say that. What he said was don't have a hypocritical and destructive judgment. But there could be people who love you and care about you and love God and care about his ways who aren't wearing masks like hypocrites and trying to be stage actors in your life who are very much wanting to care for you and I. And so we want to be in a posture of humility to be able to receive that. But of course, this is what Jesus is prohibiting, this hypocritical, destructive judgment. Let's move on to this judgment that he does want us to exercise as a church community with each other, predominantly, um, that is thoughtful and restorative. And so if we go back to his, uh, his image of the balancing scales, there's, there's got to be this integrity and this empathy in the way in which we relate to each other, our brothers and our sisters, when we come to talk about those difficult things and have those difficult conversations motivated by love. Jesus highlights that there's got to be a thoughtfulness to this. Because if you're removing a speck, that's a gentle, gentle, gentle procedure. An accurate procedure. Uh, Something that requires uh, a real empathy. And so we cannot... We cannot love and care for each other in that way uh, if we have the monster blind spots and the mask wearing. Some of us have come out of backgrounds where to the degree that you're humble and transparent about your sin and your, your struggles, that's like whatever, whatever you say can and will be used against you. And it can feel difficult to be like, how could I possibly then 
have relationships in the church community here at Redeemer where I'm open and honest about my struggles. And so I want to in- encourage you strongly, and I put myself in this, uh, I'm not preaching down to you, all of us, we must uh, walk with a humility and a transparency that invites that kind of love and care so that when uh, those words of judgment come, uh, that we can receive them with the heart and the intent with which they are given, which is that I want you to flourish. I can see that the speck in your eye is going to actually affect everything, and I, I, and I care about you. But when there's not that thoughtful and um, caring removal of the speck, then what you're left with is not I care about you, but rather I'm judging you because I'm disgusted by you. I am uncomfortable with you. I want to live in a church community of, uh, of, of beauty and holiness and righteousness unto Christ. All of these things are true. That's what I want. That's what you want. And yet we all fail at this. And so, and so we don't want to have a judgment where it is like, okay, you're, you're, messing, up the, you're, you're messing up the righteousness vibe. I don't really care about you. I just want to be more comfortable with you. And the way that I would be more comfortable with you is if you didn't sin this way. And what I'm not saying out loud is I would actually prefer that you sinned the way that I sin because I'm quite comfortable with that. Because your sin is really sinny and disgusting and uncomfortable. And my sin is like an issue that I'm dealing with. And that's the way that we kind of phrase it, right? Hey, I'm just struggling with this issue. I don't know. God probably thinks it's a disgusting sin. No, it's just an issue that I'm dealing with. Now, what this person's up to, that's terrifying. So you see how when Jesus is using his poetry, he's leveling the ground so that there can be this love, this care, this empathy. Uh, And this only comes through the formative practices of spiritual disciplines, which comes in the sermon before us in terms of how do we relate to prayer and how do we come to God and how do we see ourselves as the poor. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Right? Not blessed are the middle class in spirit. I'm doing all right. Blessed are the upper class in spirit. There's no middle and upper class in spirit. There's only poor in spirit. This sort of language around prayer forms the way in which we can engage with our brothers and sisters when we have to bring words of judgment. Those will be words that come with, uh, with care, that we can be ministers that are restorative in this way. Jesus is really, in this text, commanding humble self-examination. He's really commanding... A, a repentance, uh, that there would be a knowledge of God's word that we desire to see formed in our own hearts and lives so that that becomes the formative force that shapes our judgment, right? Clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose. Now, we also must notice that in this there is a limit to the application of the judgment. It comes in verse 6. There's limits to this. Do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and attack you. Now, when Jesus uses this really strong and provocative language of dogs and pigs, he's not an uncaring, callous savior. When Christ was on the cross, I want you to remember, his last words on the cross were not, Father, judge the dogs. Father, get the pigs. His words were, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So when Jesus uses this really strong language, it's, it's provoking us to see there's a limit to us being able to speak restorative and, kind, and loving words of judgment based on the manner in which they are uh, being rejected. So he's not inviting us to a life of ongoing abuse. 
Right? If you go fast forward to Matthew chapter 18, we're given a real great outline for dealing with offenses. I'm not going to preach that sermon right now. But the point being that he's not just inviting us to continually keep going back to get smashed in the face emotionally, um, but being attacked by those that are just going to reject uh, the kind and loving wisdom. This is difficult, but this is, uh, this is difficult, but this is true. The immediate context for this, of course, of those who are rejecting it, again, it's not, this, it's not the city at large. It's the brother and the sister that you go to who don't want to listen to the judgment that you're bringing. There's a limit to it. And what this means is I can continually be kind, but we're probably not going to be close. And that's sad, but I have relationships like that in my life. I'm going to continually be kind to you, but we're probably not going to be close. And I share this with you because there's two sides to this. If, if you are the one who has got to realize you're at, you're at the limit of giving the wise and loving and caring judgment, motivated as, as best as you, with a clear conscience before God for their benefit, you have got to say that's the end of the conversation. There's that side of it. But the other side of it is we have to recognize when we are, when we are the dog, when we are the pig, I know often when I've read this text, I don't ever read myself into that part of it. I immediately read it like, ah, yeah. Church, who are the dogs and pigs in our lives? Write their names down. Like, ah, this is the application part of the sermon where I'm supposed to think about all who the dogs and pigs are. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's easy. Let's get to the hard stuff. When and how and with whom are you a little bit of a dog and a pig? I mean, they love you. They care about you. They're, they're trying to. They're endeavoring to. Like, they want your flourishing. That's what they want. But you're just like, I don't want to hear it. I've, I, I'm not preaching down to you. I've done this. I, sometimes I still do this. Sometimes I'm a total dog and a pig to Susan, to my kids. There's been times when, when uh, Nigel said to me, like, Dad. Right? Dad, calm down. And the first thing I want to say to him is like, you know, you don't get to judge me. I would never say that, of course, because I'm very sanctified. But <laughs> it just comes out. I can do it. I can't be the only one in here. Right? I can't be. And there's a limit then to how much people will keep coming into our life until they finally realize this is actually unfruitful. And they're going to back off. And it's to my own detriment that they back off. It's to my own detriment if Susan says, I'm tired of talking to Paul about this. I'm tired of it. So I'm going to just let it. I mean, life is, a, life is a terrible and harsh teacher. And so may God do a work in us, in our hearts and our spirits, humbling us so that we can be on the receiving end of this. Because sometimes we want to make it about the delivery, and that's our escape hatch from having to listen to the content. Right? Somebody comes, you know, I'll use the example I gave, you know, I'll say something to, uh, to Nigel to bring correction. I'm losing my cool. I'm way more intense than I need to be. And Nigel might say to me, Dad, Dad, calm down. And instead of sitting in like, oh, yeah, you know what? Uh, I'm not being very wise and loving and caring to the way I'm talking to my son right now. Maybe I want to just make it about the way that he's saying it. Yeah, hey, I don't appreciate your tone. Well, you're just, now I'm just being a big, massive pig. Because I'm deflecting the real thing. 
and I'm just dressing it up. And I'm all hypocritus, mask wearing. So I think it's important for us to sit in this and consider it. And the last thing I'm going to say on this would be that there are limits to the judgment that we can bring outside of, outside of this church community to the greater community as a part of our vocation. We need to bring it. I think if we look biblically through the Old Testament, I'm motivated, I'm encouraged greatly by uh, those that God used in civic life to bring reforms and, or, or, or ways that God used, say, Joseph, Daniel, Nehemiah, where it's like, you have a political, civic vocation. I'm using you redemptively in a, in a, in a grand redemptive plan, but here in this moment, I'm using you to restore some things in the city, a city that does not love God, doesn't love his ways, isn't going to follow his ways, isn't interested in his ways, but yet using these people in their respective cities at their time, their, 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 uh, their time in history. So I think, there is, I think it is important for us to see ourselves outside of this worship, uh, worship service and outside of these relationships in the city as ministers who bring our gifts, and sometimes that looks like exercising judgment and conversations uh, in, in the culture. So there's a place for that, and we have to do that. But just be mindful, this is not actually the context for, for this. I think it's appropriate to consider ways in which we can bring wise and loving judgment where the ways of God, if we can say it tactfully, thoughtfully, with civility, uh, can lead those who don't even believe in God's ways into greater flourishing. I do believe that is true. But we also must recognize there is a massive limit to that. There's no way that Joseph and Nehemiah and, and Daniel and friends all rose to the ranks of political power by, uh, uh, by not having dif- any difficult conversations where they said, you know what, I think I'm going to use my God-given gift and I'm going to keep my mouth shut in this situation. There's no way you become the cupbearer of the king by every single time he's opening his mouth and going, hey, you know the God you worship is the right God, right? Okay, there, I did my Christian duty by making it. There's no way. So there is a thoughtfulness and a wisdom to which we must engage, but there's also limits to it. And so we have to, I think, exercise that as believers in our city and not have an over-realized eschatology, if I could use that kind of phrase, meaning we think we're going to somehow Christianify the city and Christianify uh, Canada and then look to heaven and say, Jesus, look at this. We've cleaned it up. Everything is resembling your nature and your ways. You can return now. That sort of eschatology is unhelpful. We don't actually find it in scripture, but it's super popular. It sells a lot of books and it packs out stadiums. And I'm just here to encourage you to say that is an overrealized, I think, understanding of what the church has always done in culture, what the New Testament church did in culture, and what you and I can do here as we love, be loving and caring, thoughtful ministers in Kitchener-Waterloo. Exercise wisdom, yes, but recognize that there's going to be limits to it. And the last thing I'll say as I close is some good news. I mean, is there any good news in all of this talk of judgment? Well, there is, because our God, Jesus Christ, God incarnate, has been given all judgment. The Father gives the judgment to the Son. This is what the New Testament said. So therefore, over us, we have this divine judge. And our divine judge is loving and caring and wise. The divine judge is so loving that he moved heaven and earth to come to redeem his people, to restore his creation. The, the divine judge is also our justifier. He is our judge and justifier. We stand in a borrowed holiness before him for all who trust in God. If you're here this morning and you're exploring Christian faith, here's what I would encourage you to, to understand if you only hear one thing this morning. Let it be this. 
that the Christian life of desiring to live a life of love and of, of thoughtfulness and care and justice is not so that God will accept us. It is because we know that on, based on the perfection of Jesus Christ, we are already accepted. We trust in him. We trust in his resurrection. And the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ is the teaser trailer of what is coming, which is the renewal of all things bodily. And so because that is true, there is good news in this, all of this talk of judgment. Because even though the modern constructs of God would say, well, it would be much more attractive if it was just a God that sort of just accepted everything. That God isn't worth worshiping. You don't accept everything. You have standards. And if you have standards that, if you're honest, you sometimes don't even live up to your own standards. Right? Whether if, if you're here and you're a Christian or you're... You're agnostic and you're wondering and you're seeking. All of us have standards and all of us have days where we're like, yeah, I did not live up to my own standard. So you see, the, the good news of the judgment of God is not that there is a particular kind of a person that he accepts. The good news of the judgment of God is that regardless of the kind of person you are, if you trust in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, you are accepted. So you see, the way of the cross is narrow in one sense, because we must trust in Jesus Christ and Him crucified. But then it is radically broad in another sense, because there is not a particular kind of a person that will do that. Anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord can, receive, can be received by Him. This is the good news in all of the judgment. The same grace that saves us teaches us. Teaches us to be people of thoughtful, restorative justice and judgment. And this is the good news of the gospel. So may God continue to empower us to exercise this kind of judgment right here in this Redeemer community. May we be a community of compassion and not a hypocritical comparison. May we be bold and willing to speak difficult words and conversations to one another when we see things in each other's lives, maybe it's in community groups or just in the life of the church, that we want to speak to someone in a to help them flourish. May we be thoughtful and caring in the way in which we do that. May we also be people of humility and great security in our identity in Christ so that when those conversations do come our way, we, we can actually receive them and not deflect them. May we not be the dogs. <laughs> May we not be the pigs. May we not be the ones who, when, when someone comes to us with awful judgment, that we trample them. May God, by the power of His Spirit, do this great work in us. May we live in increasing freedom from our sin, and may we live in boldness to live out and share this love of Jesus, the great divine judge and justifier, the one who takes away the guilt of all of our sin. Let's pray.